0: Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us. Holy Spirit, we, as we sung today, we pray that you would break through our darkness, that you would be alive and working in us, that we might show forth your light. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I saw the other day online that um, this is about the time when New Year's resolutions are given up. And I have to say that I was proud of myself, if I can gloat a little bit here, to say that I have been in the Y since New Year's, minus my sickness, and um, my brother and I have been doing bench press, which I haven't done probably since uh, seminary days when I had a, a, a gym available to me. Um, and those of you that have ever benched know that you, can, you increasingly up the weight on the bar. You increasingly up that weight. And why do you do that? Well, because as your muscles get used to the weight you're doing, you need to do more work in order to continue to grow the strength of your muscles. And the same is true with the human soul. The same is true with the human soul. You know, today's text is not an easy one because today's text is hitting us right where it hurts, right where we know that we all stand convicted. Right? It's a complicated text, but Jesus ups the bar in this text. We're in Matthew's gospel. We're going from what would have been the Beatitudes readings last week here into Christ telling us that we're light and salt, that we're light and salt. And we have to ask ourselves, well, what does this mean about being light and salt and why is it that Matthew and Christ, more importantly, puts that text just prior to his telling us that he's fulfilled the law and then gives us an excursus on the law itself, an explanation of the law itself? Look with me today at the text. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Two normal household goods or experiences salt and light. Jesus says to his people, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then he continues in verse 14 saying, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the house. Stop there for a second. So Jesus makes the comparison that we, as his followers, we who call ourselves Christians, are salt and light. What does salt do? Salt gives flavor. Without flavor, it's useless, right? We've all over-diluted things, perhaps a soup or, or a recipe where you expand the recipe but forget to expand the salt. And what happens? The salt becomes useless. It becomes tasteless. The whole thing is ruined. But Jesus also says that we're the light of the world. And notice what he says in verse 14, that the light can't be hidden. You see, whether you like it or not, you and I, as Christians, are the light of the world. It's not like we have a choice. People look to you if you take the name Christian. If you believe in Jesus, they look to you, whether you like it or not. Sometimes we don't like that. You know, there's a reason I don't have a bumper sticker with a fish or anything Christian on my car. That's because that sometimes I don't want to be identified as the Christian that I am, let alone the clergy person that I am when I'm driving, right? We might not want to be identified with Christ sometimes because our actions don't fit our beliefs. We look like hypocrites. And yet Jesus says you are salt and you are light whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not. And then he continues to go into that excursus on the law. Continue with me as we jump down to verse 21. Jesus deals with anger or malice. He deals with lust or adultery. He deals with divorce, and he deals with oaths. Why do you suppose Jesus deals with those things in this text when talking about light and salt? Why do you think? Okay, there's things that easily show us to lose our salt or our light. And I would say that there's actually two reasons. Now, Theologians get into various uses of the law, the first use, the second use, the third use. I'm not going to get into that today. But let's simply look at the two. Number one, we are to be preserved by our adherence to holiness. We're preserved by our adherence to holiness. What does that mean? Well, like salt preserves meat or anything, so God's holiness preserves us, preserves our lives, preserves our happiness, right? So think about it. This is kind of common sense. If you follow the 10 Commandments, for example, if you try to be a moral person following God's holy ways, is your life gonna be better or worse than the person that thinks, ah, to heck with it all. I'm going to do what I want. Better. Why? That seems counterintuitive. It seems like, boy, why do I want to be told what to do? Right? I don't I know what makes me happy. I want to go out and do it. But God says no, not because he doesn't want you to be happy, but because he wants us to be happy and preserved. So he gives us his law. Think about people who follow God's law versus people who don't. Their life might still be painful, yes, but their life is at least orderly. It's at least somewhat together. It's not a big mess of entangled relationships and hurts and distrusts. Second of all, God wants us to be a light to the world. As Holly said, yes, these things are lights to our world. They show away. So it doesn't just preserve us, but it also shows forth God's glory. Why? Because it shows forth God's concern and love for humanity. So God is lovingly preserving us and showing forth himself in his law. Why these particular ones? Murder is a transgression of the Sixth Commandment, right? We said the Ten Commandments today. Why do we say the ten, ten Commandments at the beginning of every month? Well, we all need that reminder. It's also part of our confession, right? We confess, Lord, have mercy upon me. I've messed these up and incline my heart to keep this law, we say. And then we finally end with write all these laws in our hearts. We beseech thee. We'll get to that part. So the sixth commandment is dealt with in verses 21 through 22. Now, I could go through each one of these because they're all very intricate and they're actually explaining how the human soul works and how the heart works regarding holiness and regarding our relationships with each other. But I'm not going to do that. And part of the reason I'm not going to do that today is that as we go into the season of Lent, I'll be teaching a series on the seven deadly sins, which actually addresses these. But looking at the bigger teaching here, we see the first one dealing with murder and anger, specifically malice specifically malice. I actually don't like the way the ESV translates this because it gives it a wrong tone. You see, the word here in Greek is orgidzo, orgidzo, which doesn't mean anger because, for example, in Ephesians 4.26, God's word tells us, be angry yet do not sin. So anger is not ungodly. However, what is ungodly is rage or malice. What's the difference? How can that Ephesians verse be true? How can you be angry and yet not sin? It's how you act on it, it, sure. Whether it's acting it out with your body, or in your voice, with your words, or in your heart. In your heart. You see, you can be angry with somebody and not wish them dead. Now, I can say that I've been angry with somebody and have wished them dead. And, you know, we all laugh at that. And um, I know you probably think that, uh, really, You've, you've done that? Yes. When people hurt people that you love, you want their head. And I can say that I've been there. That if I had been in the room with that person with a weapon in my hand, I would have killed them. It's a confession. It's a confession. Jesus says that's as bad as murder. Why? Because our actions start with the actions of the heart. Our actions start with actions of the mind. You know, the apostle James actually treats this very point in, in chapter 1, verse 14, where the apostle James says, But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. What James is saying there is all sin begins with that desire, which is an action of the heart. Jesus continues with adultery. In verses 27 and 28, he says what? You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Has anybody ever done that? You don't have to raise your hand. Yes, of course. Of course we have. Jesus says that that's as bad as actually committing the act. Again, why? Because it transgresses the law of God and it starts going in us a process that if left unchecked yields that sin and then death itself. He goes on to talk about divorce. Verse 31 and 32 It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What's going on there? Well, you see, the Pharisees at Jesus' time were writing divorces very easily Very easily. The Jews were supposed to be different from the pagans. In fact, in the ancient world, all you had to do, and actually in the Muslim world to this day, all you still have to do is say, I divorce you to your wife. And done. Go out and have another partner. Right? It had gotten so bad in the Jewish world at this point that in the Midrash, in the Jewish writings, the rabbinical writings on divorce, you could divorce your wife if she burnt your toast in the morning. I'm not kidding. That's literally an example from the Midrash. If she burnt your toast in the morning, you could divorce her. So, you know, you think it's bad today. Jesus is saying, no, the purpose of marriage is an eternal purpose. It's a purpose that should show forth God's love. And how does that looking, how does that aspect of marriage, how does treating marriage that way truly befit one of God's creatures? And it certainly doesn't show forth His continual love. Oaths. Oaths. That's what He deals with next. Why? Again, going back to the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment tells us that we're not to bear false witness. And Jesus says, let your yes be your yes, and your no be your no. Why? Because what was happening at his time is that people were swearing by things and then saying, well, I didn't swear by God Almighty, therefore, you have to let this one go. They might swear by Jerusalem, which is an example that he gives. Or they might swear by the temple. Or they might swear by their own head, right? And they'd say, well, I didn't swear by God's authority, so you can't hold me accountable to this. Jesus says, no, that's not the way of the Christian. Christians are not malicious. Christians are not lustful and adulterous. Christ followers do not get divorces or remarry those that are divorced. And Christians do not take false oaths. Why is Jesus so hard on these things? Because he's trying to show a contrast with the world. He's trying to show that his kingdom is not built on technicalities, but is built at the depths of the human heart. Bishop Ryle puts it this way. In his commentary on this passage, he says, Surely if words mean anything, we're meant to learn from these two figures that there must be something marked, distinct, and peculiar about our character if we're true Christians. It will never do to idle through life thinking that living like others, thinking and living like others, if we mean to be owned by Christ and his people. He continues, Have we grace? Then it must be seen. Have we spirit? Then it must be fruit. Have we any saving religion? Then there must be a difference of habits, tastes, and a turn of mind between us and those who think only of the world. In short, Bishop Ryle is saying that we have to look different as Christians if we're going to be salt and light because we're called to be different, because we're called to reflect our Lord in holiness. But if you feel like the bar has been raised on you and the weight has been increased, then good. Good. But don't let it drive you to despair. Don't let it drive you to despair, but let it drive you to hope. Because that's not the end of the scripture passage, thank God. Why is it that in between salt and light and this excursus on the law, we come to Christ's talking about fulfilling the law in verse 17, do you suppose? Because while this is the standard way up here, and while you and I can't even struggle to push up the bar on that standard, we have someone who, do, who did and does lift that weight, Jesus himself. But he wants to make it clear to us that he hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So verse 17, he says, do not, come, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, to, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law, until all is accomplished. But if you're following in your Bibles, underline that line, until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments, teaches and teaches others to do the same, will be least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has not come to abolish the law. The Ten Commandments are in force. The judgments here from our Savior himself are in force. However, praise God, there's mercy and there's forgiveness. Because Jesus didn't just come to up the bar. He didn't just come to give a heavier load, a heavier weight on the law. But he came to fulfill it and to bear it himself. And he did on the cross. So while we're still called to be holy, while we're still called to uphold these things, when we do make mistakes, when we do lust, when we do have bad thoughts, malicious intent towards somebody, when we do that, when we take his name in vain. When we do any of those laws, we, because of Jesus Christ, can cry out, Lord, have mercy upon me and write all these thy laws on my heart, I beseech thee. Because Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit as we heard in the First Corinthians passage. What is it to keep the law? It's to be in Christ. It's to be in Christ. That doesn't mean the law doesn't matter anymore, but it does mean that if we're in Christ, we've been freed from the sentence attached to the law, namely death. And we can get up day after day and continue down the path of holiness. Isn't that good news? Do you see how crushing this would be without that good news? I hope so. Let us pray. Lord, we cannot live up to our own happiness standard. We cannot meet the demands of the law. We thank you, Jesus Christ, that you've died for our sins that you die for our faults and our transgressions. We throw ourselves at your feet and ask for your mercy. And we ask, Lord, that we would be given your Holy Spirit so that we can continue to be salt and light in our day. In Jesus' name, amen.